I ultimately pursued these experiences, uh, like among many others, just to get a real taste of what those career choices would feel like and be like, but ultimately to improve my clinical knowledge. And, and that's because I, I think the more holistic you are in your clinical experiences, the better pathologist you can actually be. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strink. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. There are many myths about the field of pathology, which can sometimes keep medical students from choosing it as a specialty. My guest today is Harry Gaffney. Now, Harry is a medical student in Australia. We're going to talk about some of the incredible adventures he's had as a medical student, and then we'll dispel some of the myths about pathology based on his own experiences. And for those students out there, Harry gives some really practical examples of how you can get a better understanding of what pathology really is and why those of us in the field love it so much. All right, here's Harry Gaffney. You're, you're in Australia. That's right. Uh, yep, absolutely am. It's, um, it's pretty cold here at the moment, though, so it doesn't feel cold. like it. What's yeah. cold? Oh, okay, here we go. Um, <laughs> subjectivity. Uh, it is 13 degrees Celsius here. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, though, Dennis. All right, let me, I'm going to figure that out quickly. <laughs> just, well, just because I'm in Wisconsin, so cold is like, uh, you know, it's kind of what we do here. <laughs> All right, so that's 55 Fahrenheit. What, what's that like on your, um, on your scale? That's, I mean, that's like spring weather for us, I think. <laughs> but that's paint drying weather. That's golfing weather. For us, it's yeah. um, get, in, get into like a, a sleeping bag and just like, just, just huddle down for a bit and hibernate. Interesting. All right. That, that's some, that's some interesting perspective there. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to get into a lot more of your uh, experiences and I think some of them are a bit uh, hotter than that as far as temperature. <laughs> but so the, the first thing though, now you became interested in medicine and you're currently a, a medical student, right? You're just finishing your third year, I think. Is that right? Yeah, It's my final year. So we, we have an Americanized system. It's a four year postgraduate. Um, okay. So it's um, I'm in my final year, and I'm just uh, I'm I'm pretty much finishing up. I've just finished my final exam, and um, oh, now wow. I'm just going. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I've passed that, so I'm very happy. So I've, I've fulfilled all the requirements, but um, just going through rotations until the end of the year, and going to some some various aspects of the hospitals and specialties, and just learning about them, and then I'll be done. Cool. All right. Now you go right from there into residency. You know, you're going into pathology residency right no see it's a little bit different in australia where we have a one-year mandatory internship um, okay which is still it's like a it's a trainee uh, medical officer so we we do a, a year of that and we get placed based on interview criteria and but we are all guaranteed a placement uh, and then thereafter we can consider specializing we can apply for specific, specific colleges um, one of those colleges would be um the GP college and um, basically what happens there is is you you only need one year of clinical experience in order to get into that college and specialize and the the remainder including the RCPA uh, require two years no now let, let's go back to the beginning of, of sure because you 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 were you got interested in medicine at, at a very young age I've, I've heard you on a couple other podcasts and you kind of told this story so can you can you tell us here how, how did that happen like many others, you know, I, I wanted to become a doctor and it was after my first memorable interaction with one as a kid, as, um, you know, it, it seems like a lot of other people sort of share the same um, sentiment as well. Um, I had really bad asthma, saw my doctor, you know, I, I couldn't really run and play 
uh, you know, soccer with my friends properly. You know, I had the skill, but I just didn't have the the capacity. And then, you know, my doctor gave me an inhaler and it fixed me. And then I was able to run and ride bikes with my friends. And it's really, I guess, influenced who I am today. Um, the, the, you know, the upbringing that I had uh, with my social circles and the, the active social circles that I had. So after that, I was just so interested in what they actually did to fix me. And I, I wanted to learn and understand exactly what they knew and what their thought process was behind how they can approach and fix someone that was struggling so much with uh, something that was essential to life, breathing. So, you know, I, I was only thinking not only just how they fix me, but like what was it that was actually making me sick as well was a big thing. So um, on reflection, I guess I, without even realizing it, my fascination towards the disease process of asthma might have been the first time that I was actually leaning towards pathology. But, you know, I, I honestly think, you know, how can anyone not be fascinated by what happens behind the process of um, disease and fixing disease and what what happens behind the closed doors of doctors' offices and their thought processes and what's going on in their mind to to actually fix these things that are happening? It's just, I think it's crazy cool. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And that's interesting that even at, at that young age, you were already starting to think about things like that. Yeah. Now, I wonder then if kind of trying to understand disease process, is that what, because you eventually went and, and studied microbiology. Is that kind of what led you to that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So what what is cooler than the thing that you can't see that causes all of the diseases in the first place or the majority of the mm-hmm. diseases and, and and more so? So yeah, I, I studied microbiology um, and I, I had some other topics in molecular biology and immunology as well in my undergraduate. And I found literally every aspect of that fascinating and amazing. And I'm still very interested in microbiology. I hope to incorporate it in some way into my practice in the future. I found a lab environment just awesome, um, you know, culturing microbes just fantastic, looking under the microscope. And to me as well, microbiology plays a huge role in pathology, um, you know, HPV causing cervical cancer and anogenital and throat cancer. And uh, a recent thing that I learned about Streptococcus bovis, uh, a microbe that, um, and there, there's an infection there that it has an extremely strong correlation with colorectal cancer and you know that potential role in uh, carcinogenesis is still unclear and, and not up for debate and I, uh, it's really up for debate and i want to go and find out what, what that's all about but on a, on a wider scale outside of pathology there are so many uh, fascinating aspects you know there's the, the micro sides of things you know there's this immune cell called a neutrophil that literally throws nets of dna like nets like spider-man um and, you know, to trap other pathogens. And, you know, that's, that's happening inside us all right now. Uh, this, you know, the, the philosophical sides of things. Viruses alive or are they just sophisticated biological machines? And either way, anyone leans on that. It's still a fantastic, you know, rabbit hole to go down. And then, the, you know, the greater implications and, and the wider impact of microorganisms have on the world as well. So, you know, uh, I was reading uh, a few months ago. It still sticks in my head. A few months ago, I was reading a... Um, journal article that was well, a breakdown of what life would be like uh, in a world without microbes and you know we wouldn't be able to digest our food properly which doesn't seem too bad you know um, just a few stomach aches we'd have a, a weakened immune system but there'd also be no more nitrogen cycling throughout the ecosystem so that means there'd be no plant growth ultimately what this paper ended up saying and, and a, a lot of others agree is that you know there'd be a catastrophic failure of the food supply chain and society would collapse within a year and then ultimately all all life on Earth would cease to exist uh, due to worldwide biogeochemical association, and I just, I just think that that you know 
the, from every single lens, you know, the micro to the macro um, in biology and microbiology, it's just like every facet just is fascinating as a result of that. I don't know. I think that's cool. No, I agree. I mean, when I was in uh, undergrad as well, I, I enjoyed microbiology. I mean, I, I've kind of gotten a, a like not kind of, I have, I've gotten away from that now being more in anatomic pathology, but I, I agree that it is fascinating. And, it, you know, especially right now, I mean, that's the, the, the subject of microbiology is pretty timely and it's something mm. that everyone's been talking about for what, two plus years now. Oh yeah. Nonstop. Uh, whether they know it or not, um, microbiology, mm -hmm. I think is at the focal point of every um, small talk in the elevator. So yeah, it's, um, it's getting uh, more and more known. And I think, you know, that's, that's a really interesting point. I think that's where pathology really has an opportunity to shine in the public. Uh, not many people know about pathology and what we do. Right. Um, but as a result, you know, this, this whole pandemic has really opened people's eyes as to, you know, the impact that we can have on, um, on, on the world uh, come if anything ever like this happens again. Or, yeah, you're so right. Mm -hmm. It's our lives. Yeah, and there's so many great stories of, of about pathologists and other people in lab medicine, just the things that they've been doing throughout the pandemic, you know, not only doing their own jobs, but filling in in other areas that they might not normally do. And it's it's been some fascinating stuff. And we've really, as a field, we've really had an impact on on things that, that were happening. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, even with... Mm -hmm. um, HPV and uh, cervical cancer and ultimately playing, you know, the key part in developing a vaccine for it. Um, you know, that's that if pathology was to cease as a, as a specialty from here on out, I think that um, that impact alone is just phenomenal um, in the, in the medical world. So yeah, it's it just, it, it just permeates every single aspect of life. Uh, it's just such a, just such a cool field. You know, did you ever, and I know, I know you were inspired to, to become a doctor at a young age, but did you ever, as you were getting into microbiology and becoming very interested in it, did you ever think, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to be a microbiologist and not continue on to medical school? Was that ever kind of a, a thought process for you? Yes. So um, it's not anymore because I know that pathology is, is the crossover into microbiology that I've always been looking for. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, in respect to um, my my uh, process into medical school after undergraduate, because it's it's a postgraduate degree. So once we finish our undergraduate, we um, take an entrance exam and have an interview for medical school. And our, our GPA for the undergraduate, so our grades for the undergraduate, our exam score and our interview score gets um, all coalesced, and um, that that ultimately determines our co um, competitive uh, competitiveness for getting into medicine. What I ultimately did was I, I made that application to medical school and I um, did the interview and I did all the exams and I, I went through all the hurdles and hoops. But as a side quest in the, the game of life, I, I chose, uh, I also signed up for a uh, an honours project in gut microbiology as well, just in case I didn't get into medical school. That safety net was really quite lateral in my mind. You know, I, did, I, I was just as excited to start that project as an honours project for the year as I was to get into medical school and the prospects of either of those. So if I didn't get in, I, I would be a gut microbiologist by now, probably. <laughs> okay, I get it. I love that you called it a side quest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, oh, so, all right. So one more thing about the your medical training. Now, I know you did something during that, which I'm not sure if we have in the US, but it's called a parallel rural curriculum yes. can you explain what that is yeah yeah absolutely so um the parallel rural 
um, curriculum. It's now called the um, Doctor of Medicine Rural Stream, the MDRS. It's gone through a rebranding in the past year. Just in case there are any listeners that are interested, um, that's awkward. That's what you would want to search up at the MDRS. Um, It's uh, basically where you spend one year of your degree in a rural location. You you interview for it um, just to make sure that you're, you're, you're aware and for the, the 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 types of different challenges that are associated to working rurally and being placed rurally, you know, being away from your peers and the different um, aspects of being in a tiny community, and really, it's it's really really rewarding. Um, so basically, what you do is is um, I, I interviewed for it and I was lucky enough to be one of the people that got in, and a small cohort of us was spread around. How many people do they do they take? Um, so our cohort is two hundred people. Okay. Uh, uh, which is a little bit larger than normal. But uh, from memory, I think it's about 15 of us all up um, get in. Um, some of them are already locked in um, mm-hmm. through the original interview process in medicine. They express interest in wanting to be a part of it from the beginning. And others uh, can enter in after their first year of medicine um, if they feel that um, you know they've, they've found a different calling uh, into rural medicine and they'd like to give it a shot and try it out and experience it. So um, I, I was in the, the latter group where I interviewed for it after a year because it wasn't an option that I was aware of until then. And then so what what kind of training is involved with that? And then where do you go? Yeah, so basically um, the, the training that's involved in a rural environment is a little bit different to uh, a metropolitan hospital. You still get the same quality of um, training and everything along those lines, but also um, you find that you get a lot more hands-on teaching. Uh, and the reason for that is basically because you're, you're working in a smaller team and hospitals uh, rurally uh, quite famously in Australia are at least quite understaffed and there's a big calling to get people out into into rural communities um, for, from a healthcare workforce perspective. Just as a bit of a plug, you know, you get much more hands-on teaching and I think that um, medical knowledge is consolidated when you're practising. So in rural hospitals, you're given a bit more responsibility um, and as a result, you have much more hands-on learning. You get uh, more one-to-one teaching and support from your, your peers and colleagues and, and supervisors. For myself, anecdotally, on, on day one of placement, um, I was consulting patients. I was suturing, removing foreign bodies from eyes. Uh, and I feel a lot more confident uh, clinically after my rural experiences. Another part of the training that's a little bit different is not so much in the curriculum itself, but it's the community that you're in. So um, I love rural communities. They're a really tight-knit uh, and ultimately, I think, is what makes rural work so rewarding to be in, much like pathology would be rewarding to be in because it's a, it's a bit of a smaller team environment. But nonetheless, I got to be a part of community walks and charity runs and fundraising events, and I, I got to have dinner with my consultants and the, the beautiful golden retrievers, and I, I joined the local council and uh, helped uh, organise some local community events, you know, things outside of medicine but are so pivotal to actually being a, a health professional working in any field. You know, I think as human beings, we're innately empathetic and at least to some extent socially driven. Um, and there's proven research that shows there's a correlation between um, lower population densities and a higher sense of self-satisfaction and a feeling of belonging um, in a society. So from my anecdotal experience, being part of a tight-knit community gives you some, um, you know, some real purposeful, meaningful connections that are incredibly fulfilling. And I, I look back on them all the time and I think, wow, you know, um, I, I really connected with this small community and, and they connected with me and we had such a great time together. Um, and as a result of this, I'm just a huge advocate of just um, joining the rural uh, healthcare workforce and just like pushing that narrative just to give it a shot. It, it, it might just be what you're looking for without realising it. And ultimately, while I am pursuing pathology and will very, very likely, probably definitely uh, end up 
in a metropolitan accredited laboratory because that's where they all are. Um, so it's, a, it's a centralized specialty. I, I have every intention of working rurally um, and gaining as much experience as I can before um, I'm eligible to apply for the RCPA. So for those, you know, one or one or two years of working clinically uh, that I'll be doing, it will be rurally um, because it's such a it's such a great environment to to work and learn in. Okay, that makes sense. I, I like the to that sort of connection to the community in, around the rural hospital, which I guess you definitely would not get in a more uh, metropolitan setting, like you said. Oh yeah. So that 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 that's very key. Okay. So then did this kind of experience working in the in a rural setting, is that what kind of got you interested in the Royal Flying Doctor Service? Oh, yeah. So um, to, to anyone that's not in Australia, the, the Royal Flying Doctor Service is a, a not-for-profit organization that works um, countrywide. And, and what they are is, is, a, is a, a, well, I guess it's in the name, it's a flying doctor service. So rurally, any, any people that are, are in a bit of trouble you know, they have a snake bite or there's a trauma on a local, uh, on, on like a rural mining site. Um, we would fly out and retrieve them and bring them to a hospital. We'd also do aeromedical, um, you know, stabilization and medical care as well, either on site or on the plane as well. I had a, a fantastic experience with them during medical school in Australia. There, there are some scholarships that are on offer to um, get some extracurricular clinical experience, which is always handy to have uh, as a medical student. Um, and I was lucky enough to receive a scholarship to spend some time with the Royal Flying Doctors. We flew to emergency call-outs, you know, at all times of the day and night, 24-7. Um, and I, I helped multi-trauma patients and some were in a really bad way. Um, like I was talking about mining accidents, you know, you can imagine what happens at a mining site and all the machinery. And you could probably uh, let your imagination run wild on what um, a multiple injury trauma might look like in a, in a mining accident. Mm-hmm. Um but they're the types of things that I saw and they're the types of things that I helped with. And, you know, from this, I, I learned about, you know, life-sustaining measures and stabilizing patients in an aeromedical environment where there's less oxygen, you know. Um, there are those extra factors that are put into play. We're in a mood, we're, we're in the sky, you know. It's an entirely different scenario, um, giving care to someone in the sky. So globally, not too many physicians, let alone medical students, I think, have been given the opportunity to, you know, provide care and stabilize, um, you know, life thousands of feet in the air. And I, I feel lucky to have been a part of this experience. Oh, and a little plug for the um, Royal Flying Doctors Service. They have a really good show. They've just, they've, it's a really high production quality drama show about it, if anyone wants to check it out too. Just kind of for a little bit of context, like how remote are these locations that you're flying to? Like how, how far away are they from, uh, I don't know, the, the city or, or the base, wherever you're stationed? Oh gosh, um, it's not. It's almost not within driving distance unless you have really stocked up and you're sleeping on the side of the road uh, along the way. A good way to put it: there are wild dogs that are around. There's sometimes no running water. There's no reception, um, and people go on bushwalks and don't come back. So it, it's one of those. It's just wow. so so rural that you know when people think of Australia and they think of the red soil and the dust. Um, it's that it, it is actually that there's there's no buildings that are bigger than two stories um they they are just there's just like two houses one of the places that we service is a um i guess it's the equivalent of a, a truck stop or oh, not really well it's like a little cafe it's like a little life support cafe along the way when you're driving throughout um, rural australia um okay. straight through the middle of it in the arid desert 
And we go down there and, and we provide health checks once a month for the staff there because there's not nothing else. They live on in the cafe. So it's, it's very, very rural. I, I was trying to think about like what in the U.S., like what part of the country would, that would be like. And I suppose the best thing I could think of was like, you know, Alaska, really, because there's there's parts of that that are just. I mean, of course, it's it's snow. It's not you know hot like there in Australia, but there's parts of that that are just miles and miles of wide open nothing. Yeah. So I imagine it'd be similar to that. It's exactly like that. Um, you you drive and all you see is just flat plains of barely any growth because it's just arid. Yeah, it's uh, it's, it's almost so remote it's hard to describe. But Alaska was probably a, a good um, analogy to to compare it to. In respect to you know just how um, little services are there for for people to mm-hmm. you know live in. So when you're doing this, did you ever think like, what have I gotten myself into here? What you know, like what am I doing? Or- oh my gosh, yes, um, you've just asked. Yeah, absolutely. A, a story just came back to me, um, a particular experience. So I was at a, a roadhouse, which is like one of the ones that I was um, describing before, because the, the roads are so long, you might run out of water. So these roadhouses are real lifelines. You, you go there and. They'll, they'll give you like some water and stuff so you can continue on your journey. I was at one of these roadhouses just doing some, uh, helping with some health checkups with, uh, with the staff there. And um, this four-wheel drive uh, stopped out the front and um, this husband, uh, so this, this, this guy got out, um, he's, you know, relatively old, he's, you know, his mid seventies. He's like, please help, please help. Um, my, my, my wife, um, is in the car and she she's feeling really dizzy and sometimes she's not responding to me and um so the pilot and i ran out because the doctor was midway the doctor that i was placed with was midway through a consolidator so can you go check it out and i was like i i'm i am now the most experienced person to deal with this uh, because i've got a pilot and there's mm-hmm. me <laughs> and I'm, I'm a i'm just a i think i'm a fresh medical student maybe second year i i i I really know about um, the citric acid cycle and uh, the electron transport chain. Like, I, I don't know about like, I, don't, like okay. I, I know that I know what a mitochondrion is, but I don't know how to provide you know much more um, health support than that. But anyway, gotcha. Um, but, but yeah, <laughs> but but because of my experience so far um, with the Royal Flying Doctors, I had really picked up quite a lot of how to conduct. Um, you know, examinations and investigations and and ways to double check, you know, is this person in real danger or not? So I, I was able to check and see if it was vertical and horizontal nystagmus, check how um, hydrated they were with their skin turgor and check their mucous membranes. And it's, I could tell straight away that this person was severely, severely dehydrated. And I asked, you know, when's the last time that you guys had water? So, well, we've been driving for a long time. Um, I guess I guess we just haven't thought to drink any. And um, yeah, this this poor person was um, so severely dehydrated. So we got them um, to, to lay on the ground. We got them some IV fluids from the the back of the plane, and mm-hmm. um, and hooked them up for a bit, and gave them some oral fluids as well. And you know, after an hour and a half, they, they felt a lot better, which was great. But um, yeah, it was really lucky they were there because who knows what would have happened because there was no medically trained staff on at the, this particular roadhouse. And I think. It would have been, I think it would have been like a mirage um, to them. You know, they're driving, they've probably been driving for five or six hours, not seeing anything around them. Then there's a roadhouse with the the Royal Flying Doctors plane um, just just there. And uh, that that's quite lucky that we were there and they were at the same time. 
So yeah, yeah that sure. was definitely a scenario that I felt a bit out of my depth. Uh-huh. Um, but I'm not, af- I'm not afraid of much anymore. I can, I, I, I'm, I can definitely recognize when things are bad and need additional help. So I'm a very safe practice, but I'm not very nervous when it comes to the potential of identifying those things because of these experiences. Uh, and that's why I'm such an advocate for just trying out rural um, stuff because you, you get an experience that you wouldn't otherwise. That makes a lot of sense. How long did you work with the Royal Flying Doctors? Um, I think it was a, a little over a month. So I think it was about five or six weeks, um, which is quite a long time when it comes to just going on, you know, uh, up to 15 flights a day, um, mm-hmm. Monday to Sunday, two, three in the morning sometimes. So yeah, it, Wait, it, it was 15 a, a day. Oh yeah. You just kept going and going there. Wow. You know, you'd, yeah. If you stop someone that had food, you'd grab a sandwich from them um, because they're rural communities. They're very, very nice. They'd give you a sandwich to, to take with you and you just eat it on the plane and uh, keep talking about the next stop you have to do. Okay. Wow. All right. Well, I got to think experience like that. Uh, that's got to look pretty good on the, uh, on applications and, and things like that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's something that I, I don't really put centrally on my CV, but it is an experience that I often find myself speaking about, um, with, with other, with other, you know, peers, colleagues, uh, and other interviews that I've, I've done, um, for professional interviews. This is the people of pathology podcast with our guest, Harry Gaffney. We'll be right back. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Now back to Harry Gaffney on the People of Pathology podcast. So with the, this experience with the Royal Flying Doctors and, you know, working in the, the rural areas and, and things like that. Now, it, it seems like, especially with the with the the Royal Flying Doctors, like he, it seems like emergency medicine would be more kind of something you'd want to do or perhaps surgery, something like that. How did how does it that you came to pathology? Um, yeah. So why I chose um these experiences, you know, that, that, that's a really good point. And I see, I see the benefits and appeal of emergency medicine as, as uh, and surgery as a specialty to pursue. hundred percent, I can see the merits of it. And, you know, I ultimately pursued these experiences, uh, like among many others, just to get a real taste of what those career choices would feel like and be like, but ultimately to improve my clinical knowledge. And, and that's because I, I think the more holistic you are in your clinical experiences, the better pathologist you can actually be. And, you know, we, we both know how important clinical context is alongside observation and interpretation of uh, specimens in the, in the pathology world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, of course. And the clinical context, you know, really often provides essential clues to that final diagnosis that, that you would ultimately give as a pathologist. And it's why a pathologist request, uh, pathology request um, comes with clinical information and specific questions. But in saying that, you know, we, we don't... it's really difficult, but we need to ensure that we don't rely on clinical context to the point where it actually leads us down a garden path and potentially the wrong clinical diagnosis. And and for that reason, I think we need to have strong independent um, clinical reasoning alongside our specimen interpretation. And to get that strong clinical reasoning, um, we need a holistic clinical background. And that's why I continue to and will always seek clinical experiences throughout my training 
So I know where the specimens are coming from and I know who's looked at the specimens and who's provided the clinical context behind those specimens because I was there next to them, you know, uh, and, and I was someone else that was helping remove this particular, uh, this particular specimen or I was someone that was in the ED that saw the first presentation of this person that the specimen was removed from and I can think about it holistically before I go in and evaluate the tissue histopathology, you know, for, from any for any staining reasons or any type of tissue, and know how to interpret it as accurately and holistically as possible. Why pathology became the field for me, which was um, your your ultimate question, is you know, in every clinical experience I've ever encountered, I, I've always ended up wondering about the, the how and why behind diseases, just like with the asthma when I had it as a young a young lad. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, a perfect example is, um, you know, uh, IgA vasculitis, uh, formerly known as um, Henlock Chon Pupura. I saw it in a pediatric patient earlier this year, and I immediately thought, not, wow, you know, oh, I, I know this, this is HSP, this is IgA vasculitis. I thought, what is actually causing those, you know, those non blanching skin lesions and those other, you know, signs and symptoms? You know, what, what's actually causing that? What does it look like underneath the microscope? That, that's what I thought straight away. And I found myself automatically researching the, the pathological process and digging really deep into what ludocytoclastic vasculitis with IgA and C3 immune deposit, you know, complex de- deposition actually looks like under the microscope. And now whenever I see um, an IgA vasculitis in any patient, I see what it looks like under the microscope and I understand how that vasculitis pathophysiological process occurs. And, you know, then the, there's another example this someone, um, I was in surgery. One of my rotations this year was in surgery. And we had someone come in that had um, poorly controlled gourd and they were, they, they'd had um, gastroesophageal reflux disease for, you know, decades. So we took an esophageal um, specimen, querying Barrett's esophagus. And I spent a long time learning about the metaplastic changes that occur and what it actually looks like on the slide. And most importantly, why it happens, you know, why do we get you know, um, columnar cells, you know, in, in a squamous cell environment like the esophagus. And, you know, it makes sense when you look at it from the cellular perspective and start there and then move on to the macro. You know, these two examples um, are only two of them, but this happens to me on an hourly basis. And they not only solidified my interest in pathology, which is I, I feel so strongly about, but has also been invaluable in my learning journey and understanding of medicine. And now, you know, when my peers ask me any questions about, you know, oh, um, what's that? What's that thing called again? Where the, the children present and they've got it. Kind of it. Kind of sounds like um, you know meningococcal infection. And I'm like, wait, are you talking about IgA vasculitis? And then I just go into this you know huge rant about how exactly it happens from pathology process. And I know it in and out now because I know the tissue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's interesting. But you've got the, the from from your experiences with actual patients. And yeah. you're like, you know, being in a pathology lab and being kind of remo- removed from that, like it's, we need to constantly remind ourselves that, that you know, every specimen has a patient, you, mm-hmm. you know, attached to it that, that comes from a patient. And you've got, from your experiences, you've got like concrete examples of that. And it makes it a lot easier to to make that connection and, and to keep that in mind, I think, from, mm-hmm. from, from the, uh, kind of the education that you've had mm, mm, mm. it keeps you grounded um it keeps yeah. you in check you're absolutely right I, I i think the pathologists still keep that aspect of themselves very strongly you know they're, they're the first people to find out about really intense diagnoses and i think that they actually 
consider the patient's response to that diagnosis all the time. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And I think, you know, it seems like you've had, you know, you've had experience with patients pro- probably a lot more than most medical students. And from the stories that you've told me so far, like, it sounds like you're really good with patients. You know, when you tell people that you're, you're going into pathology, I, I've heard a lot of people tell me that, you know, their their colleagues or their peers, their family and friends, whatever, will say, you know, why why do you want to kind of be tucked away in the lab? You know, you're so good with patients. You've got good people skills, that kind of stuff. Is that, have you had those sorts of conversations? Nonstop, Dennis, nonstop. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. Oh my gosh. All, all, on, on a minute to minute um, basis, whenever this topic comes up, you know, what? as a, as a medical student, there's, there's finally, um, you know, seeing the light at the end of the tunnel and leaving uh, the, the, you know, medical school environment, we're all talking about where our future projections are going to be and what our trajectory is and what specialty we're thinking about. And so that comes up very often this year. And I was only speaking to a colleague um, who I've known known for years throughout undergraduate as well yesterday and, and, you know, ultimately revealed that I was interested in pathology. It it just came up and and they were interested in uh, geriatrics and they responded with the classic, oh, no, you're, you're so good with people. And I, I know that everyone would have heard this. Anyone interested in pathology would have heard this just over and over. I, and I've heard it so much. It never really phases me, but it is why I'm here talking with you today. Sometimes it feels that everyone is kind of forgetting that as a pathologist, still, as a pathologist you still work within teams um, in non-facing roles. You know, in non-patient-facing roles like radiology and pathology, you, you really are still working within small teams. It's not It's not like you just all of a sudden, um, it's just you and the microscope who you've now named in like a, like a Wilson-esque, you know, castaway environment. So you are, yeah. <laughs> you're talking, you're, you're still connecting with people. You're still talking with people. And I feel like this is such a common misconception when I come across, um, when I'm discussing pathology, am I interested in it with peers all the time? Yeah, nonstop, happens all the time. I can understand that. And like, like I said, I've heard that from a lot of people. All right, so one of the reasons we wanted to talk today was to talk about some of these misconceptions about pathology and, and about pathologists specifically. And yeah. I think we've touched on a couple of them already, but so let, let's talk about some of these and kind of compare like what your experience has been. First of all, it's, and I, this doesn't seem to apply to you at all, but it's, it, there's the misconception that pathologists can be antisocial. What, what do you think about that one? Yeah, I, I think this is a huge misconception. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I've noticed that these misconceptions seem to stem mostly from uh, my colleagues, and this is only anecdotally, but from my colleagues that haven't entered a pathology lab or haven't um, considered pathology uh, in their clinical learning um, since since the non-clinical times of our, um, of our medical degree. So uh, I feel like the less people know about pathology, the more the misconception kind of arises. Well, I have been in a pathology lab um, quite a lot recently, uh, so I can definitely provide some insight uh, to anyone who is listening that has any misconceptions. Um, you know, I've worked just alongside um, really approachable, knowledgeable, encouraging, and you know, inspiring pathologists. And I think that people only really need to have a listen to this podcast and the other pathologists that um, you've, you've spoken to to get a, a deeper understanding of that. 
I get called into offices and shown amazing cases and I've had really deep, insightful discussions with pathologists about how to improve patient care. Almost every conversation about tissue or any pathology that they've come across is ultimately under the, uh, under the umbrella of the topic of improving patient care. Um, how can we do this better? How can we um, diagnose this faster? How can we diagnose this more accurately to improve patient care? How can we communicate these um, results to uh, other clinicians better so that they um, understand the pathophysiological process that happens behind it? How can we get extra research um, out there to improve patient health outcomes? Even in the, the preclinical years of our medical degree, um, the consultant pathologists who gave all of our lectures, who ran the pathology sides of um, our education, that they're, they're considered, and still to this day, a, an absolute legend. Um, they, they're one of the, you know, I don't know if uh, other people have had that experience, but you know, there's that one professor or there's that one, there's the one or two mm, teaching sure. um, staff that are just legendary. There are stories about them that are just awe-inspiring. And that happens to be our, our professor who's a pathologist who taught us. And some of the best conversations I've ever had have been in the path lab in that environment with, with pathologists. You know, talking about the pathologists uh, on this podcast, you know, I, I, I always point people towards um, episode 100, um, uh, Dr. Cameron Misra, um, three quarters of the way in, there's an awe-inspiring and heartfelt monologue about overcoming adversity that, yeah. that uh, yeah, it, it wasn't like, I'm getting goosebumps right now just thinking about that conversation. And just how empathetic uh, Dr. Mizra is and how active they are in the community and how passionate they are about people, it all speaks for itself. I, and so when I had this conversation yesterday with one of my colleagues, I said, you got to listen to this. And I just played it. And they were like, that was, that was really cool. Fantastic example of the people that are in pathology. Yeah, he's he is definitely a a perfect example of the kind of people that are in pathology because he's such a great guy and he's so very well known and he's a great he's a great role model for anybody who wants to be a pathologist or just work in in this field. Absolutely, I, I'm. Yeah, and I'm really happy you shared that one. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I've listened to all of them. Um, and that one really sticks out as to like the flagship of what, what I'm here for, what you're here for, what, what we're discussing today. And that it is just such a flagship about that. These are the, the people are saying the wrong things, you know, um, there are these huge misconceptions and, you know, I almost take it personally sometimes because you've got, you've got these fantastic people that are spending their own time to talk about their experiences and advocate for, you know, their, their decisions and man, I don't, I don't feel like it has to happen. I, I feel like this is, yeah, I, I just can't wait to help dispel these myths. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I could go on all day about, you know, I've, I've, I've worked in this field almost 20 years now and mm -hmm. the pathologists that I've worked with have been some of the most, some of the friendliest people I've ever met, you know, and I, I could go on and on about interesting case that I saw and you, you speak to the pathologist about it the next day and they're like, Oh yeah, that was, that looked really, really interesting. And, you know, and they're like, Oh, I've got the slides. You want to come in and take a look at them and then we'll sit and talk about the slides and talk about, you know, life in general, just whatever yes. That's, that happens all of the time. Pathologists mm -hmm. are, are very friendly people. I, it's baffling to me where this kind of misconception came from. Like I, I can't figure it out. Yeah. Well, we're doing something about it. And I'm, I'm very happy that something like this exists. So yeah, um, yeah I hope so. Have a, have a forum to, 
to help ameliorate these um, these misconceptions. All right. So so here's another one. Like when I tell people, because I'm a, you know a pathologist assistant, and I tell hmm. people, oh, you know, work in pathology, whatever, and they're like, yeah, right, you work with dead people. Got it. That that's I think another misconception. Like pathology is more concerned with the dead than the living, which is clearly false. So let, let's talk about this one. Yeah, let's do it. Um, so so I, look, I, it, it, I mean, it, it's just it, I'm, just, I'm just gobsmacked sometimes. But um, look, I think another way to address this misconception is to rephrase it um, into a more accurate lens, and and that lens is that pathologists are doctors who are interested in understanding the disease process at a, you know, at a cellular and molecular level to help ameliorate those disease processes. It's got nothing to do with wanting to um, only work with dead people or away from patients. It's about helping patient health outcomes by looking at the, the, the pathophysiological process at cellular and molecular level. It's just what they're interested in. I mean, like, you know, think about authors who've written your favourite book. Think about Brandon Sanderson, the best fantasy novel writer of the debate um, ever, or, you know, Will White, another fantasy author. Um, I like fantasy books. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I don't think of those guys as, um, as uh, people that, uh, you know, don't like interacting with other people. I don't think of that at all. I think that there are people who are passionate about a particular topic and want to pursue it for the greater good. And that greater good happens to be bringing joy to everyone's lives through the epic um, fantasy tales of their their genres. They don't have any misconceptions about their antisocial personalities because they don't have them. They're just passionate people. But in respect back to pathology, because I'm digressing a bit, you know, I remember I had a, a coffee with a pathologist colleague earlier this year. Just, just, I, I wanted to pick their brain a bit about pathology and what, what they chose because they've had the same misconceptions. Um, I've, I've spoken to their colleagues and they go, Oh, I can't believe this person got into, into pathology. They're such a people person. And I, I anyway, I caught up with them and they, they tell me multiple stories, uh, which clearly displays a significant level of personal care for patients and, um, where these slides came from. And one story that sticks in my mind is that they, they happened to diagnose an adenocarcinoma on a slide of this patient and they wrote the report on it. They noticed they couldn't stop thinking about that patient and they, they eventually ended up calling up the surgeon that this biopsy came from to, to follow up on the case and get an update and the, the surgeon gave their information about it. But that wasn't enough. So they they sat on it for a bit and eventually ended up seeing the patient themselves just to see how they were feeling. They sat with that patient for an hour and just discussed, you know, everything that possible and had a real connection I think that just, like I said, as human beings, we, we seek connection and we seek empathy and we seek, you know, um, feeling like a sense of belonging. And, um, just because someone's chosen to look at things behind a microscope for, for the, um, efforts of patient care doesn't mean they don't care about it. Clearly they do. We have uh, an example here of someone that was craving it, um, after looking at the slides. And yeah. I think it just goes to show that, you know, pathologists are human beings who clearly care about patients and they're just interested in a specific field of medicine to assist in that patient care. Um, and that's all it is. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, and, and we know, you know, pathology is really the basis for all specialties of, me- of medicine, if you really kind of go backwards uh, mm. th- that way. And, you know, like we like we said earlier, I mean, the pa- you know, the pandemic, a lot of that you know, pathology had a lot to do with what happened through all of that. Yeah, as far absolutely. As diagnosis and, you know, treatment and all of those things. 
Mm-hmm. You know, when we were all in lockdown, I'm sure that wasn't a misconception that we all uh, hated each other and were antisocial. We just happened to be, have to be right. in our rooms for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this brings up another misconception of that, that mm. pathologists don't interact with with peers or other people outside of the lab, which I think the story you just told kind of dispels mm. that one. And so, so let's talk about this because there's it seems to me from, from my point of view, like pathologists are getting more involved in these like multidisciplinary teams, uh, tumor boards and, and, and things like that. So this one, well, all right, let, let's, so let's talk about this one. What's, what's your experience with this? Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I think that this one's already been dispelled already throughout these stories that we've told, like you said, mm-hmm. um, you know, but I, I guess, you know, I'm a prime example of, um, uh, dispelling this myth, you know, I'm not a pathologist yet and I'm not always in the lab, but here I am meeting pathologists outside of the office and lab, really frequently and discussing a multitude of different um, topics with them. On top of this, from a professional perspective, pathologists regularly attend, you know, that the MDT meetings, the multidisciplinary team meetings to share their reports and opinions on patients. So from a professional standpoint, they are interacting with people at the lab because they're a key part of patient care and they need to be. Um, but from a social perspective as well, earlier in the year, I was lucky enough to get a, a scholarship to attend this year's um, RCPA pathology update, which is, a, I'm not too sure if others know, but it's a, a conference event where speakers share new research and, and you know, okay. they, they get along with each other. And really, it's a, it's a chance for pathologists to reconnect and recharge with each other, which is, you know, I think the whole world can empathize with that now after being in lockdown for a period of time and then wanting to reconnect. It's the same situation. Um, so, of course, they interact with peers outside of a lab, whether it be colleagues physically outside of the lab or others in different professions as well. You know, and as a future pathologist, I'm going to continue uh, playing guitar at the local uh, at the local pub in open mic nights. And I'm going to continue getting my telescope out at night and going stargazing with my friends and hiking with my friends into the gym with with friends outside of medicine and inside of it. So um, I'm going to continue um, interacting with peers outside of the lab in a multitude of ways. Um, you know, so, you know, from a professional and social standpoint, there's plenty of avenues to interact with peers outside the lab. And, you know, the RCPA offers those um, options through their pathology update and other, and other um, conference events and, and other events overall. And from a professional standpoint, you're always, you, you, you have to interact with peers outside the lab to improve patient health outcomes. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, absolutely. Um, myth dispelled, in my opinion, um, just from that alone. Yeah, that makes sense to me. In addition to the, you know podcasts like this and this kind of conversation we we're just we're having right now, yeah. What else can we do to dispel these myths and just to raise to raise awareness for the field of pathology? Yeah, that's a really good question, Dennis. I appreciate that one. Um, so one of the common themes I've I've kind of identified from this this conversation and podcast is you know there's lots of misconceptions about pathologists and it appears to mostly stem from I guess a lack of a lack of exposure to pathology or a lack of clinical exposure to pathology, either from a medical school perspective or or a clinical perspective once you've um, graduated. So, one initiative that I'm working on at the moment in my um, in my medical school is I'm working with um, the general surgeon teams at my hospital, um, and I'm implementing uh, having the medical students transport biopsy tissues from the surgery up to the path lab, talk about the results find out how it's all prepared and stained and looked at 
um, and then go and report that to the surgical team when it's available, just to, to, to see that it's a clinical, it's a key clinical part of, of medicine. Because in our school, at the very least, um, it's really just a, it's a series of lectures and we have a quick look at the microscope and then we don't, we don't revisit that again. And I think that getting people involved in that process will help raise awareness. Um, but I guess, you know, that to help dispel the myths, if, if that initiative isn't available in your medical school or that initiative has since passed because you're not in medical school anymore, then just visit your path lab. Go and have a talk to the pathologists and try and get a rotation in pathology if you can as a student or as a registrar or an RMO or, uh, or equivalent over in, um, in, in the States and everywhere else. Follow the tissues from the clinic to the surgery, uh, to the lab, and then report it to the team. You know, follow up on it. See, take, take the journey that a pathologist would and take the journey that the patient's um, biopsy would too. And, you know, we spoke about Dr. Um, Cameron Miser's, um, you know, uh, episode 100. Um, have a look at Pathelective, that, that free online resource to learn more about pathology. Yeah. Um, just ultimately, like, this all comes under the umbrella that, you know, learn what pathology is all about from a clinical perspective. Interact with pathologists when you, you can. And you'll find that these misconceptions are just that. There's there's nothing more to them. And I think everyone will be surprised. I love it. I love it. Those are those are all great ideas. Part of the reason I do this podcast is to, to, to dispel myths like this, to advocate for the field. And I'm, I'm glad to have you here uh, doing this with me. It's going to be very interesting to, uh, to, to follow your career uh, into pathology from here. So, Harry Gaffney, mm. thank you very much. Oh, thanks, Dennis. I really appreciate you giving the time um, for me. Thank you. Great big thanks to Harry Gaffney. Here's a trailer from another episode that I think you'll enjoy. And then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode. Using a systematic approach like this, you never forget a step because it's built into your system once you once you kind of automatize it. Is that does that sound accurate? Yes, it certainly sounds accurate. I would also like to add that this is a particular step-by-step approach which I feel all of us follow day in and day out. It's nothing very new or it's nothing magical. Whenever we get our slides subconsciously or consciously, we are thinking about how to go about it and how to reach to a particular diagnosis. It is just that to bring it on paper and to kind of describe it in the form of a flowchart at times sounds difficult and that is what I have tried to do. At the same time, this kind of uh, algorithmic process or an approach may be different for different individuals. To hear more from Dr. Pranav Patwarden and his algorithmic approach to pathology, check out episode 36. All right, so this was a really fun conversation with Harry and just hearing his stories about the Royal Flying Doctors. I mean, th- that's that's crazy, but it must be such great, you know, rewarding experience for him to have. So uh, I really enjoyed hearing that. This episode would be helpful for medical students, or even for college students, or for anyone who gets questions from students about what pathology is. And you can use the examples that Harry gave to help dispel some of the myths about our field. And hopefully with that information, we can help some people rethink their opinion of pathology and laboratory medicine. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything that we talked about today. Don't forget, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. This episode would be a great one to share with anyone you know who might be interested in the field. And I appreciate all of you that are sharing the show. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being 
And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.